0: scripture reading this morning is found in the 22nd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. So I invite your attention to the public reading of God's holy word as we find it there in the first uh, 14 verses. Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king. Who gave a wedding feast for his son? And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, Tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, went their way one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there was a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness and that place. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. And may God bless the reading of his scripture. May we receive it by faith. And may we ponder its majesty as we should. Parables uh, teach us about the present and the future kingdom of God. But here God is uh, dealing with a particular aspect of his kingdom in which he calls his people. Uh, The text contains three responses to the call of God. Two of those responses are resoundingly rejected. And it is, of course, meant to teach us how we came to faith. It is to rivet us to those who do come in the parable and who remain for what is the greatest celebration of all time, a future aspect of the kingdom, a present aspect of the nature of the call of God. The story is about a wedding feast and invitations to the feast. The context, of course, engages Israel, subject matter of the surrounding parables, and the elect from all the nations. More critically, the kingdom invitations come with a sense of urgency, as refusal to the invitation means cataclysmic judgment going to do something a little bit unique and oppose a measure of theology on top of the text, but it's really inherent within the text itself from uh, the 14th verse. But there's a general call that God makes to all the nations and all men without exception. And the general call of the gospel is issued through the servants of the King. Here they go out into the highways and byways of life and they extend invitations to come to the wedding feast. The general call of the gospel is refused and rejected, verses 1 to 7. It's important to understand the general nature of the call of God, the invitation, if you will, that extends all over the world. It's carried out by the servants of God. The invited are offered to come to a celebration, I would uh, ask you to take it simply in a moment to understand that that celebration of the wedding feast is to be extended to uh, the end state of eternity and an eternal celebration. In the ancient Near East, wedding celebrations often lasted over days. Our gospel has eternal reward that will last world without end. The party is unending. I know all of you have gone to celebrations in your life, perhaps a family celebration, a family reunion, perhaps a wedding, perhaps some other event. And you wished it would never end. In the gospel, it never will. One of the issues of the invitation that's carried by the servants of the king, of which you and I are so numbered, is that we have no power whatsoever to bring people into the kingdom. We can only invite. By way of application, I might add that we should invite people with an understanding of the scripture, with compassion, uh, with a measure of the love of God that has come to us. But nonetheless, the response here are framed by Israel in the days of Jesus, And the response is, by and large, not universal, but by and large, decisive rejection. First, the parable tells us that they are unwilling. In the days of Jesus, an invitation would go out, and then the recipients would be notified when the celebration was beginning. At this, they become bold and even violent in their rejection. Again, reading verses 5 and 6. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Literally, if you look at the phrase, they paid no attention simply to focus upon that one aspect. They just didn't give a hoot. Could have cared less. In the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke, it's a little bit more dramatic. Luke chapter 14, verses 18 to 20. But they all alike begin to make excuses. The first one said to him, I bought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. And another one said, I've married a wife and for that reason I cannot come. Just simply the nature of man. A long litany of excuses. They make light of the invitation and suppress the reality of what it means. You must understand that when God makes invitations, it comes with incredible significance because it means instinctively that we will be held to account regardless of how we respond. We may have pressing business. But to give no response to the gospel is, again, a profound significance. Because God's invitations are not to be taken lightly. He is the ultimate, absolute sovereign king. When He invites, it is not without consequence when we play around with all the silly excuses that we have. I'm not unmindful that life has many difficulties, many priorities. I'm simply telling you that God is not to be dealt lightly with. It puts them, of course, in harm's way. That is the ultimate point of refusing the invitation of his servants. I think Luke again puts it best... In the 14th chapter, in the 24th verse, For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. It means that the gate to the great city where God lives, where God has established an eternal celebration, is closing. The day is late. In the case here, in Matthew, the king makes war with them. It's just simply the history of evangelism and missionary work, and the outcome. Nevertheless, God commissions us to go. You and I are part of this parable. God commissions us as a church to represent the gospel of Jesus Christ to a world. We extend invitations. We cannot browbeat people into the kingdom. We cannot argue them into the kingdom. We cannot take some course at the university as to how to win every argument. That's a moral issue, and only God can change hearts. But nonetheless, all of us ought to craft some short testimony and some compression of the gospel to extend invitation to men to the greatest event of all time. I'll give you an illustration from uh, the Old Testament of of, uh, an invitation. If you have your Old Testament, I trust you do. Uh, The book of Proverbs. Ninth chapter. There is an invitation to the gospel in the ninth chapter of the book of Proverbs. It's a personification of wisdom in a beautiful young woman. I remind you that the gospel is a beautiful event. There is not an artisan in all of the world that could so paint a picture to express the beauty of Jesus Christ and what it is that he does for his people. But here it is captured in wisdom that is personified. I uh, would like to believe that some of you are coin collectors. A number of years ago, in fact, the, the, the mint has currently begun to restrike such beauty. There's a coin, a 50 cent piece, called the Walking Liberty. It's a woman, beautiful woman. Imagine what is captured in the sense of freedom, liberty, political freedom and liberty, a place to go where you could have free speech, a place to go where the king could not come and take your children, your daughters, seize your property. That is a concept so beautiful in political history it was captured by the artisans of the mint to to strike a 50-cent piece upon which is captured the walking liberty. It's a beautiful coin. I know the mint restrikes them, but uh, it's no longer a 50-cent piece unless you have so saved one. Because in American culture, we trash everything, even our currency. 1964, we jerked the silver out. Current coins, the 50 cent pieces, the quarters. Again, I know you could care less about my political understanding of uh, monetary theory, but they're just simply ugly to me. But you give me a walking liberty. It's a piece of art. And so there's art in Proverbs chapter 9. There's a beautiful woman. She goes into the streets of Israel to call to the young men and women. She's calling out for wisdom. She has built her house, she has hewn out its seven pillars, she has prepared her food, she has mixed her wine, she has set her table. It's a wedding feast, if you will, different metaphor, but the concept is the same. She has sent out her maidens, she calls from the tops of the heights of the city, whoever is naive, let him turn in here. To him who lacks understanding, she says, come eat my food and drink of the wine that I have mixed, forsake your folly and live, proceed in the way of understanding." It's an eternal invitation captured in this notion of a beautiful woman inviting the simple the naive to come, receive, to sit at the table of wisdom and that God is ultimate wisdom, that life is a moral event and that none will escape the judgment save the provision of God in Jesus Christ, that God gives wisdom to the naive, understanding to the simple, It's incredible what God does to those who receive the invitation. But if you've ever read Proverbs chapter 9, you know that there's something profoundly unique in this invitation. That is that that there is a competitor who has has a different invitation. Verses 13 to 18. The woman of folly is boisterous. She is naive and knows nothing, and she sits in the doorway of her house. On a seat by the high places of the city, calling to those who pass by, who are making their paths straight. Whoever is naive, naive, let him come and hear. To him who lacks understanding, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. It's probably the prostitute preying upon young men who know not wisdom. I think, sadly, of American culture. All of the competition the young men and women and boys and girls who turn into her house, who have little understanding of what they are about to do. The competitor traffics in counterfeit hopes and dreams. The appearance is staggering, but those who sup with her will pay a steep price that they know not of. And so Solomon tells us in verse 18, but he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. To go into that house is to die, one day at a time, world without end. Just simply the call, the invitation of the gospel. There's two responses to the gospel. There's two responses in our text. Look look at another one that's uh, part of... uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, verses 11 to 12. Another response, just looking at it through a different lens. Our Savior has just effected salvation upon a Gentile. That was a staggering concept of the Jews in the days of Jesus. And then he frames it in the concept of an eternal celebration. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The Gentiles are going to come from north, south, east, and west. They cannot be kept from coming. The call will go out and they will understand who Christ is and they will come. They will recline at table with the great patriarchs and be part of the family of God. It is one of the greatest and perhaps only invitations of eternal significance of all time. When we traffic in the gospel, we're inviting men and women and boys and girls To an eternal celebration with the blessed patriarchs and all that that means from the covenantal reality be part of the family of God. But many could care less. And the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness in that place there should be weeping and gnashing of the teeth. That part is uh, part of our text as well. The call is urgent. Something of this, I think, in the majestic words of the Apostle Paul, 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Spirit explicitly, pardon me. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. and Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. What's the big deal? I mean, Why should you be urgent? For the time will come when they will not endure a sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They will embrace the competitor, Proverbs chapter 9, and forsake wisdom. The day is late. The kingdom has started. To use a transportation metaphor train is pulling out of the station. If you're not a Christian, I can extend to you the general call of the gospel and invite you to Jesus Christ. I will tell you that if you come, you will not be disappointed. I will tell you it's difficult. I'm not suggesting it's easy. But I will tell you that none have ever come to Christ regretted what they have done. If all of the great political polling companies in our country could go to heaven but for a moment and give a poll, none would ever come back. None would regret. None would say Christ was a shyster lawyer. None would say, I wish I'd never come. It's the invitation that goes to you if you're not a Christian. Christ is the only redeemer. There's thousands of competitors, but he's the only one appointed by God. That God describes his revelation, his mercies, and his word. He gives his word to his prophets, to his teachers, to his pastors, to all of us to share the gospel, to issue the invitation. I warn you to be careful about trifling with it. The nature of the call, the general call of the Gospels, it's universal, extends to all men without exception. It's affected by the preaching of the word. It can be rejected, and that anatomy is here. They could have cared less. By the way, if you're a Christian, you invite people, don't get discouraged when they give you 10,000 excuses. Understand that there are reasons that sound good, and good sound reasons. Your duty and responsibility is to invite. At that point, it leaves your sphere of influence. I'd like now to transition uh, to a different call. It's called the effectual call, uh, in which God is inherent in the call. He uses means. Uh, the servants are the same, but God uh, makes an appendage to that call in his spirit. So there's a subtle shift here from men to God. Uh you may say to yourself, well, don't be subtle, but if, again, if you look at the 14th verse, you will understand it becomes radically explicit there. Uh, that God begins to call, and when he calls, things uh, happen. Uh, the call cannot be refused. In this case, the Spirit is dispatched to use the gospel to effect salvation. When God makes the call, kingdom invitations are effectual and ineluctable to the elect, meaning that they are kept for a future celebration of unparalleled magnitude. I think that is the story, verses 8 to 14. I like to go to parties, particularly when the cooks are good. We are looking at the best. give you an illustration here. You may not quite understand what it means when God calls that people can't, people can't refuse. Now, I understand it's a difficult concept. Uh, we think we're free. We can refuse anything. But let me remind you of the creation account. Uh, God says, let there be light. Is that an argument? Do the molecules, do the atoms say, Lord, go to sleep? Uh, we're not going to obey you. No, when God commands, things happen. It's just inherent to the who God is. He doesn't plead with light to become light. He simply speaks and it happens. That's inherently what happens in the effectual call of the gospel. God commands and the commandment is fulfilled because he's God. He adds himself to the call, his nature, his power. I want to attract you, if I may, to the end state Isaiah chapter 25, verses 6 to 9. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain, a banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. Uh, It's going to be a celebration. And on this mountain, he will swallow up the covering which is over all peoples, even the veil which is stretched over all nations. He will swallow up death for all time. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. He will remove the reproach of his people from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God for whom we have waited that he might save us. It's a great party. God saves his people. The intended recipient is persuaded by divine power and made willing. In the case of the former, the general call, there's the objective call of the word of God. In this case, there's the subjective call of the internal work of the Holy Spirit with the word of God to secure the elect. Resistance is overcome, and what was once odious is now sheer delight. It's captured for us in uh, the words of the Gospel of John. Familiar text, I, I trust, John chapter 6, the 37th verse. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. In the eternal application of redemption, the Father gives to the Son in the given come. Described for us how they come in verse 44. No one can come to me except the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. The effectual call is in the drawing that the Father exercises upon the hearts of all he gives to the Son. In the case of the parable of Matthew chapter 22, I love the phrase, the wedding hall was filled. I remind you again the greatest celebration of all time. is about to begin. I I occasionally watch this uh, program on television. Uh, Some chef wins a competition. I'm amazed at what those guys do with food. I'm amazed at what Christ does with the gospel. Broken lives. Uh, The phrase... He wipes away all tears. It's what God does for his people. The invitation goes forth. Contextually, we will see it in this parable, but it's more expansive in the rest of the scriptures. When the call of God is linked to the character of God and divine choice, the call is irresistible. Let's look at this notion. It's the beauty of the call of God. It's the beauty of what he does for his people. Uh, The Father is the author of this call. Uh, It is first in the application of redemption. When God begins to deal with his people, the first thing he does, he calls them. He dispatches his agent and the Holy Spirit to effect a union with Christ. Let's look at the character of God in this call. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9. God is faithful. The character of God. God is faithful. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You were called. There was an invitation. But attached to that invitation is the very nature of God who is faithful to secure for his Son, the glory of his son. It's linked to the character of God who acts upon us. The end state is fellowship with Christ. The call, therefore, cannot fail to achieve the intended end of securing us into fellowship with his son. Why is that? Because God is faithful, because God is all-powerful, because God is all-knowing, all-wise. And when God says to The heart of one of his own, let there be light. There is light. Another great expression of this in Paul's first letter to the church at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 24th verse. Appeal to the character of God. Faithful as he calls you. The context is a number of precepts of God that encompass the effect of the divine call, the doing of which is linked to the character of God. I'm going to read to you the essentially more literal rendering of the Greek text. Faithful is the one calling you. He also will do it. It means of all the duties of the Christian faith, and there are many, God will make it so in the hearts of his people because he calls us and he makes it happen. In other words, God secures our response to the call. Second, the call is uh, secured uh, by divine power. Romans chapter 4, verse 17. As it is written, the father of many nations have I made you in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. The context is the promise of a son given to Abraham, and Abraham long since passes the biological ability of he and his wife to bear a child, but God can create the promise of God goes to Abraham, but it's not a lifeless promise. Inherent within the promise itself is divine power. And on the day of God's choosing, Sarah bears a son. Because God can give life to that which is dead. If you're a Christian, that's exactly what he did with you. He called you and made you alive so that you would respond to the call. It's linked to God's sovereign power. Thirdly, the call is offered in time as an extension of God's eternal purposes. The call is purposeful and targeted. The chain of redemption in Romans chapter 8 is perhaps one of the most beautiful expressions of all of the scripture, of the chain, of the redemptive events that occur within the heart of a believer, the child of God, the child of the faith. It's the order of the application of redemption. Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And whom he predestined, these he also called. And whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. At each junction, events are set in motion to secure our glory. Eternal purposes, followed by the call of God. And then in rapid-fire order, justification and glorification. Nothing can stop the order. God sets it in motion. No one can say stop to God. No one can say, well, God, can we sit down in and just kind of haggle over this? That's folly. That's the notion of so many today in our culture, but that's the competitor of Proverbs chapter 9. Listen to the beautiful voice of wisdom and the eternal chain of redemption. God's eternal purposes. Issue a call. And the call then is followed by the great events of salvation ending in our glory. The events suffer no interruption. Nothing about the totality of our salvation can be derailed. God is the subject and God will secure the blessings that he has for us in eternity. I don't understand much of contemporary American theology, but I don't have to. It's this notion that uh, God just simply does his part and then he turns to you and says, well, good luck, I hope you make it. Uh, That theology does nothing for my heart. It doesn't stir me. It doesn't wow me. God doesn't say, good luck, I hope you make it. God secures the intended effect and the response that he demands of his eternal sons and daughters. And were it any other way, we would have no hope. Our faith would eventually unravel, and we would be lost. Bringing us to the table and setting before us sumptuous meals like justification and sanctification, we are so enthralled and so thrilled by the meal, we will never get up and never leave. And he keeps us by his own power. Fourth, of course, the call is gracious. It has nothing to do with anything within us or about us. Uh, Romans chapter 9 in the 11th verse. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works but because of him who calls. Now, I'm reminding you that there's something that I'm trying to do, and that is to get you to attach to the notion of God's calling to God's eternal purposes and election because once you do that in the text I think pushes us in that direction I would use stronger language but uh, just out of niceties I think it pushes you in that direction you must say that the calling is irresistible and effectual I love the word ineluctable it cannot be denied God has such a powerful sway over us and the beauty and majesty of walking liberty and walking wisdom in Jesus Christ that we say, wow, that's incredible. I want her. I want the Savior. We flee to him never, ever to leave again. I understand there are moments of discouragements and perhaps momentarily lapses, and I understand sometimes we fall. But he is so profoundly beautiful and handsome, we eventually get up and return again to our great and only Redeemer, only to learn that his hand was upon us from eternity past. The initiative is divine, the outcome is certain. The effectual call cannot fail. It's accomplishment. Romans chapter 11 and verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be changed. It's an immutable call. If the call was mutable, if the call could fail to intend its eternal purposes, I submit to you the reality that God would not be God, and that's insanity. When God appends to the call, his eternal character, We're not only going to be invited, he's going to bring us. And we're going to delight in coming. Because the celebration is so incredibly profound. Illustration of this, if you want to see it happening perhaps in a measure of your own life. Occurred in the life of one of the greatest men who's ever lived, the Apostle Paul. He describes uh, his own coming to faith. Uh, Galatians chapter 1 and the 15th verse. But when he who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace was pleased. Paul comes to faith because God called him and set him apart before he was even in his mother's womb. Description of your own faith. This sentiment is captured for us, I think, most beautifully and perhaps decisively in 2 Timothy, chapter 1, in verse 9. Previous verse uh, speaks of the gospel according to the power of God. And therefore it has to happen because God's power is linked to the gospel. I preach the gospel. When God preaches it, he adds power to what is preached. Verse 9, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling Not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. It's an incredible expression of the grace of God that in eternity past, He set His affections upon us. He issued a call, dispatches His Spirit to effect the call. The response is certain we come. We can't be kept from coming. From north, south, east, and west, we've heard the gospel. We have heard about the great table set before the patriarchs. We want to be there. We go there only to learn that he took us there in his effectual, irresistible, ineluctable call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a holy calling. Changes us and makes us different. I told you at the outset there were three responses to the call. Rejection to the general call of uh, the gospel, acceptance, uh, the effectual call. But there's a very unique uh, response here in this text that uh, is found elsewhere in the gospel of Matthew. We will look at it again and say, Matthew chapter 25. But uh, the parable ends with a man found in the assembly improperly dressed. Uh, Parables, as you know, are not precise theological statements. Uh, they're not meant to be. We have the epistles that are that. But rather it teaches us that pretenders will come into the visible kingdom. Uh, so it's what happens in Matthew chapter 22. The king goes into before the celebration is about to begin, he sees someone there who's not properly dressed. Uh, the man is found out and rejected. Uh, in the days of Jesus, men would wear white to weddings. Uh, the change of clothing is a metaphor for salvation. Uh, very quickly uh, Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, you've been baptized, you've been clothed with Christ. It's a clothing, garment, industry metaphor. We put on Christ. Christ measures the garments of our redemption and clothes us. Except for this man. He's found out, he's a pretender. I mean, his garments look a little bit like, but no, there's something off. The, 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 The tailor is... He's kind of good, but yeah, it's just something wrong. There's, no, it doesn't, doesn't seem to fit. doesn't work. He's found out. He's a pretender. It captures something of the sentiments of the nation of Israel in the days of Christ. But it's found everywhere today. Pretenders fill the church. By the way, many times they fill the church because the church itself is pretending. It's one of the reasons to give attention to the proper teaching ministry of the Scripture because pretense is everywhere. We have pretend theology and people pretend to believe, but they'll be found out. give you the better outcome, two great verses. We looked at the feast in Isaiah. Let's look at the clothing uh, affected by God. Isaiah chapter 61, the 10th verse. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord, my soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. God clothes us. He's the garment maker. He's the tailor. The beauty of the dress is incredible. There is something of this in the final book of the New Testament, the book of the Revelation, chapter 19, verses 7 and 8. It's a description of you if you are a Christian placed your hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Let her rejoice and be glad and give glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. There is a measure in the Christian faith where in the doctrine of sanctification we make ourselves ready. We lay hold of the means of grace. I'm not unmindful of that. It's part of the urgency, the call of God. Uh, But even in the doctrine of sanctification, God is sovereign. Uh, God is working these things out in our hearts to accomplish his eternal purposes. But look at verse 8. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. It was given to her. Even our participation has been given as an act of the grace of God. God clothes us. It's given to us. We don't go into the store and say, well, I think I'll pick this, uh, this, and this, and this. God clothes us and affects our eternal salvation. And thank God that he does, because it means that nothing that he does can be unraveled or worn out. I suspect some of you have in your closets... uh, Clothing that you say to yourself, well, it just doesn't fit in with the times anymore, I'm not going to wear that. Or maybe you have a, a favorite dress or shirt that it's, you can't wear it anymore, it's just worn out. You've, you've been too gracious in wearing it and suffered the vagaries of time. Or maybe in the vagaries of wherever the clothes was made, it just it begins to unravel and there's a string and you pull on it, you can't fix it. It just needs to be given away to goodwill or whatever. That, my friend, is not an eventuality of the eternal dress that the Savior gives to us. It never wears out. It is never out of step with the times. In fact, it will endure all times, and we will wear it into all eternity. And we will thank God at the eternal celebration that he so clothed us, and he has made us righteous in the blood of the Lamb. It's very interesting that the context of the book of the Revelation chapter 19 is... uh, Babylon and false religion, her, her people are dressed too, but they won't enter eternity. They'll be shut out. The idolatrous dress of the priests of false religion don't work. They're pretenders. The door will be closed upon them. Only, only the elect who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ will remain to begin the celebration. If you're not a Christian... Flee to the righteousness of Christ. Ask him to clothe you with eternal clothing that will be acceptable before the eternal king that will give you access to the eternal table and a sumptuous fare. We'll never run out. Two calls. Three responses, but really two. And two ends. A theological summary closes the story, and this is the point. I think every verse of this parable must be run through the concluding verse, the 14th verse of Matthew chapter 22. Many are called, few are chosen. The many are called is the general call of the gospel to all. The effectual call, isn't it interesting, is not mentioned in verse 14 doesn't have to. The doctrine of election is, and therefore the call is presupposed because the elect are going to come. Many are called, few are chosen. The chosen will get in, the chosen will remain, the chosen chosen will be seated at the celebration. And the lights will never be turned out. Our handkerchiefs, our cleanets boxes filled with our tears. Will be left outside. The elect are recipients of an irresistible call ending in the greatest celebration of all time, the dawn and duration of eternity. Come to Christ. He's the only one that can forgive sin. And when He forgives, you are forgiven forever. He is the only one that can change your body in the incredible effects of age. When I go visit my mother and see the effects of dementia, It's a living display of the gospel. Only he can reverse it. Because she is a Christian, he will come to the Savior if you're not a Christian. The competitors will pay you off counterfeit money. He's got the real deal. Would that he would be gracious to you. Call you to himself and set you upon the path to the great wedding feast of the Lamb.